Hey everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast for the recount about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon. With big ups to my pal Riza, the presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan and producer of our dope theme music. Like pretty much everyone who loves A, great acting, B, great writing, C, pitch black comedy, D, the voyeuristic thrill of watching a lightly fictionalized rendering of the milieu and manners of the billionaire class, and in particular those of a right-wing media baron and his children, and discovering all of it to be exactly as empty, soulless, corrupt, politically craven, personally crippling, morally bankrupt, and just plain miserable as we all assume, or at least hope, those manners and milieu to be. The third season of Succession was one of last year's true and only perfect pleasures. In its immediate wake comes a memoir from one of that show's brightest stars, an actor whose towering 60-year career has run the gamut from stage to screen, from Shakespeare, Shaw, and Stoppard, to Frasier, X-Men, and The Simpsons, from Titus Andronicus, King Lear, and Petruchio in Taming of the Shrew, to Hannibal Lecter, Herman Goering, Winston Churchill, and LBJ. And yet, who, even after all those performances and countless more, now finds himself in the role of a lifetime, or at least a role that he seems to have been born to play, one that has turned him into a pop culture phenomenon at the tender age of 75, in part because of the extraordinary range, wit, and gusto with which he repeatedly spits out his trademark two-word epithet. Fuck off. Fuck off. Fuck off. Fuck off. No, fuck off. Fuck off. You, fuck off. If you can't do it, fuck off. Go on, fuck off. Get out of here. Fuck off. Fuck off. Fuck off. Fuck off. Yeah, fuck off. The character in question is, of course, Logan Roy. The title of the memoir of the actor who plays him is Putting the Rabbit in the Hat, and the name of that actor is Brian Cox, who I am tickled pink to welcome to the podcast this week. Brian Cox has been an actor since the age of 14. He started out at the Dundee Repertory Theater in Dundee, Scotland, the town where he was born in 1946 to a working-class Catholic family, a background that Jesse Armstrong, the genius showrunner behind Succession, borrowed for Logan Roy, but only after filming the first eight episodes of season one, with Logan having been born in Canada. Once that change was decided on, as they say in the business, they went back and fixed it in post. The first 25 years of Cox's career were spent largely on stage and in Britain, until in 1986, he made his American movie debut in Michael Mann's Manhunter, playing Thomas Harris's immortal serial killer, Hannibal Lecter, for the first time on film, two years ahead of Anthony Hopkins's turn as the world's most famous cannibal in Silence of the Lambs. In the three and a half decades since then, while continuing his stage work at the Royal Shakespeare Company, the Royal National Theater, in the West End, and on Broadway, Cox has become a familiar face in movies and on television, turning in memorable performances in The Born Identity and Born Supremacy, in Charlie Kaufman's adaptation, Spike Lee's 25th Hour, Wes Anderson's Rushmore, David Fincher's Zodiac, David Milch's Deadwood, and the BBC's Doctor Who, and racking up two Olivier Awards for The Rat in the Skull and Titus Andronicus, an Emmy Award for playing Gehring in the docudrama Nuremberg, and a Golden Globe for Succession. In the past couple of years, Cox has even done voice work in McDonald's ads. You can tell this is really crispy, juicy, and tender because we wouldn't take the time to butter all these potato buns if it wasn't worth it. Introducing McDonald's new crispy chicken sandwiches. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 
And really, who wouldn't buy a chicken sandwich, especially one with a hot buttered potato bun, from the founder and CEO of Waystar Royco? As you might imagine, I had a lot of questions for Brian Cox and could have easily talked to him all day. Questions about putting the rabbit in the hat, a memoir that is an utter delight, a big bowl of candy from cover to cover, in which Cox ruminates thoughtfully, spills plenty of tea, and throws his fair share of shade at Johnny Depp, Ed Norton, Steven Seagal, and sacrilege, Quentin Tarantino, about his storied career and his experiences working with some of the greatest directors in the modern history of cinema, about portraying huge political historical figures, some heroic, like Churchill, some villainous, like Goering, and whether or not Cox would ever want to play Donald Trump, about his own politics, Cox having described himself at one point as a, quote, old socialist by nature, and the critique of capitalism embedded within succession, and, of course, an infinite number of topics related to that show itself, from Logan's Lear-like relationship to his family, what the character really thinks of Kendall, Shiv, and Roman, and what Cox really thinks of Jeremy Strong, especially in the wake of that infamous New Yorker profile late last year, which it seemed pretty clear that he didn't have much time for Strong's method acting techniques, and of Kieran Culkin, who took his performance to another level last season as Roman rose to new favor in his father's eye, then came crashing back to earth, along the way, enduring the sublime humiliation of sending a dick pic to his dad. Amazingly, Cox and I covered all of that and more, including, most poignantly, the, quote, disappointment in the human experiment that he shares with Logan Roy. But why, unlike Logan, Cox is not a misanthrope and he hasn't lost hope for us humans. Why, at bottom, this incredible actor and man of the world remains very much an optimist, despite spending his days working on a show that has captured the zeitgeist and struck a raw nerve in a moment subsumed in hell and high water. The seat sniffer gets a fucking leg up. That's a deal. What have you got in your fucking hand? What have I got? I don't know. Fucking love? Love? You come for me with love. You bust in here, guns in hand, and now you find they've turned to fucking sausages. You talk about love? You should have trusted me. Dad, why? Why? Because it works. I fucking win. Oh, go on, go on, fuck off, you nosy fucking pedestrians. So we're here with Brian Cox here on Hell and High Water. Brian, thanks for joining us on the publication of your delightful new book. Um, but I wanted to start off talking about Succession a little bit. Thanks for coming on the show today. You're welcome. Like so many people, I'm a huge Succession fan. You go back over three seasons and you're thinking, okay, so what's the sound we could play that would be the kind of quintessential distillation of Logan Roy? And there are so many different scenes that qualify. It's hard to pick, but that was from the last episode of the last scene. I think you picked probably one of the most accurate scenes there are about where we really see finally something that isn't happening a lot to Logan. And that's this thing of love. These kids who have behaved so barbarically and uh, self-serving for so long, and he's he's prepared to give it to them, but there's no love, you know. And when Roman says, oh, love, you know, and you go, 
Where has love been present in this whole circumstance? And it clearly hasn't. And I think it deeply affects Logan, which is why he says, I fucking win. Because he's just saying, you've led me to this conclusion. It's me again, on my own, doing it, getting out. And you're a bunch of pedestrians, so fuck off. And it's, it's heartbreaking. It's absolutely yes. heartbreaking for him. You did an interview a couple of years ago, early on, maybe back in 2019, where you talked about the parallels between Succession and Lear, and which, of course, you have a long familiarity with on stage. You've been in that play and played Lear and done other things. And a lot of people make these Shakespearean analogies, but Lear is probably the best one, right? And in that interview, you pointed out that Lear and Logan have similarities. But one of the things in Logan's case, and it comes through very much in that scene and throughout all of, really, I would say all three seasons, is this thing of he wants to give his, his kingdom away to one of these kids if they're worthy of it. But none of them are worthy of it, in a no, way, in his of, mind. None of them uh, measure up. No, and, and uh, as it goes on, it proves they prove less and less worthy by their treachery <laughs> and by their <laughs> sense of entitlement, which, of course, he is responsible for because he's a very rich man. So his kids yes. had the best of everything. It's not altogether his fault. It's circumstantial, but yeah. that's it. But some you feel, well, you've got to own something or offer something up in return for what you've got. Which is why he says, make your own fucking pile, you know, that he says to them eventually. Because, you know, he says, you know, you're expecting everything to be handed to you on a plate. And you have had everything handed to you on a plate. I'm just expecting some reciprocal responsibility for what the job is. And that is never there. Never there. Right. It's like he's imprinted on them. I mean, they're all in his thrall, right? They all worship him. They're all afraid of him. They're all tormented by him. They all want to please him. And they have a lot of his characteristics. They have his amorality. They have his greed. They have his kind of outlook on the world as this Hobbesian war of all against all. And yet mm -hmm. they're all incompetent, whereas he is not incompetent. He's no. a villainous character, but he's competent. And the rest of them are, are not just they lack character, but they also lack competence. And that seems well, to bother him. Yeah. And it's also they're not prepared to offer anything that kind of shifts the paradigm. He's longing for the paradigm to be shifted in some way. He's looking for that, which is why at the end, when he meets this young Swedish guy, he sees something, some other potential. It's up to the writers how they, far they take that next season. But in a way, it's a relief because he suddenly says, well, the business will be taken care of. But he knows what the predatory activity around him is, i.e. from rivals, from what have you, and people who are out to get him. He spent his life in defense of that and on the defense of that. And now he's expecting, you know, he's only asking his children to offer something in return for what they're getting. And right. they have nothing to offer. Everybody wants to blame him for that. But also, they are not without their own responsibility. Right. Yeah, right, you can right. blame him so far and you can say, oh, well, he's a bad dad and he's done that. And he's but, you know, these kids have had blessed lives. They've had everything, yes. everything. And you said so many times in, in publicizing the show that, you know, that the, one of the keys here is Logan loves his children. Right. And he, he clearly does. It's come through like he loves them, but he's also 
you know, he has also contemptuous of them in a way. And I, I'm just curious about how you think about balancing that, because it's a very tough thing, given the way he is. You point out he's, you know, he's an up by the bootstraps guy. Part of the thing is that these kids have no, all the stuff he had to do to survive, the red and tooth and claw stuff that he had to do to survive, they never had. So it's like he kind of ruined them in a way, not because he's a bad dad, because he born them into this kind of privilege where they never had yeah, to do what right. he had to do coming up. And I think that's Jesse's point, the whole notion of entitlement and what that does, and entitlement without earning it. And rapidly throughout the whole season, throughout the three seasons, yeah. he's really begun to realize that they're not going to contribute anything. They want to take without giving. Yeah. And what you also have to look at is that there's another family in this, which is the work family, the Waste or Roycon family, you know, Frank. Yeah. Jerry, Carl, now these are people he's fired, rehired, fired, rehired, but there's always this fundamental loyalty to them because of their mm. service and because of what yeah. they've done. And in a way, it's a sort of comic pretense that he does do that, but at least there's a constancy about those relationships, which is lacking in his relationship with his children. And it's, it's ultimately, I think, quite tragic. I know when you when they first came to you, when Jesse came to you and Adam McKay came to you about this, you thought this was going to be maybe only one season. And and now it's become this iconic thing. I, I just like you to kind of reflect a little bit about, you know, I played that. It was the, literally the last scene of the finale. You know, there are these moments that come with television shows when they really capture the cultural zeitgeist succession has and everyone is watching in a way for this high end streaming world we live in now. Like everyone's theorizing, everyone's talking about it. Like you've had a long, obviously long as distinguished career. Have you ever been in the middle of anything quite like this, where there's been so much avid interest, conversation, speculation, the online discussion about it over and over again? Everyone was just you know, hanging on on tenterhooks for this finale. I'm curious what that's been like to experience as you took a part that you thought maybe would be over one season. Now you're through with three on your way to four and it's a phenomenon. Yeah. You know, I had no idea that it was going to strike the public consciousness in the way it has done. You know, you do a show and you hope that people will like it. But, I mean, when we went to London and we did the big premiere in London for the show, and the reaction of the audience was astonishing, as it always is. And my, my wife was sitting, she says, it's like being at a rock concert. You're yeah. suddenly, and yeah. she said, you're you're a little bit old to be the leader of a boy band, but there is this there is this thing, and of course it's true, it's absolutely yeah. true. This whole question of what the audience love it, they just love it. They can't get enough of it, and yeah. I think Jesse's hit on something, which is, you know, it is about the efficacy of the very rich, the efficacy of how do they serve humanity. Now they can give a lot of money away. They can do that. You know, Bill Gates has done stuff. Warren Buffett has done stuff. But there's still that distances you, that money does distance you in a certain kind of way. And it makes for probably more problems, you know, that we've seen in the breakdown of, of relationships. Even Bill and Melanie Gates, you know, the, that relationship came to a point, and which is understandable. That happens in a lot of marriages. But of course, it becomes exemplified because of their position. And then you get Bezos and his wife and what his wife was left with and what right. she's done with her money, which is given to endless charity pursuits. And that's a wonderful thing because she inherited that. But she felt, I have to give that because I don't want to buy into what that does. 
And I think it's tragic in sense that it does shift people in a way. It shifts their sense of reality. It's like what I found really ridiculous was all this business of taking this rocket ship up to the air for eight minutes and then coming back down with both Branson and Bezos did. And you think, guys, guys, the problem is in the planet. It's not up there in the sky. Very well, lovely, great that you've got a spirit of adventure, but we've got so much to deal with down here because our Earth is dying. So how do we address that problem before we actually start both? And Branson came up with this ridiculous thing, we need more spaceships. Well, Richard, we don't need more spaceships. (laughs) (laughs) So we're not going to see Brian Cox on a giant penis-shaped rocket ship going into outer space anytime soon. I think that's that's breaking news on this podcast. Yeah, well, it will never happen. (laughs) Okay, good. I I feel good about that. And I'm pretty sure Logan Roy wouldn't want to do that either. And I think you've hit a point. That's what Logan is. Logan's a realist. At the end of the day, he doesn't lose his sense of reality, you know, and it's unpleasant. And you've talked about this, right? So he sees the world in a, through dark, through a very, through a glass very dark, a dark, very through a glass very darkly. And he also is, you've said before that you kind of you share something with him in the sense that this disappointment in the human experiment. I believe that's the quote, right? Yeah, yeah. But you I'm say, sure. but you say he's also a misanthrope, and you're not. Yeah. And I'm curious about that. How can you be disappointed in the human experiment and not, in some ways, become a misanthrope? And and what's the source of your optimism to the extent that you have optimism about this world that Logan doesn't have? Well. I mean, it goes right to the center of one's belief system. You know, I, I, I was raised a Catholic. And I mean, one of the great things about Catholicism, especially Catholicism in the 50s, when I was raised, there was a kind of ritual thing about it, which was very attractive. And it was a thing that appeals to the, the theatrical side of me. The sure. God stuff, I can take it or leave it. Because I think that's a sort of, <laughs> that's a distraction of some yeah. kind. So I'm dealing with the reality of being alive and what we are part of. And we are part of an ongoing something. We are definitely part of something that we have. And we're just here with little specks struggling away to make sense of it. And watch every generation that follows either takes two steps back and one step forward. And that's what had happened. And and from my point of view, from Brian Cox's point of view, I think that's why I I am an optimist, because I believe that we're still working things out. I haven't resigned, like Logan has, to the fact that of the the horrificness of the human experiment. I haven't resigned myself to that at all. I've taken another route and I said, no, it'll get better as long as we are, as long as we dedicate ourselves to improving and getting better. And human beings are capable of that because we've seen it, you know, we've seen the most extraordinary acts by human beings that have been life-changing, that have been illuminating, have been acts of incredible self-sacrifice. And I think that that is what I still think is capable of happening. And I'm very happy to be in the sort of encouragement of that. You know, I want that to happen. I want us to shift. I want us to get better. Whereas Logan says, fuck it. It's over. I don't care. I'm too old, too tired, and too talented for all that shit. <laughs> you know, it, I think I want to go back to the, a couple of these relationships, right? So one of them, in the relationships in the show, the relationship that has obviously been kind of a central thread for three seasons is the relationship between Logan and Kendall. And, you know, I thought about playing, you know, for the first season, when he first kind of decides Kendall's not going to be the successor in that moment, he basically says at one point, you know, 
you blew it with this website negotiation. Sometimes it really is a big dick competition. There's that scene. There's the scene at the end of season two, that crushing scene when he says to, to Kendall on the boat, on the yacht, he says, you have to be a killer and you're not a killer. That's why I'm not sure you could be my successor. And then Kendall, of course, tries to, to knife him. I thought at the beginning of season three, there's a great moment not much remarked on where he's on the phone with Kendall and he says something like, that was a good move, what you did, the press conference. It was a good move, but now get off your high horse. And Kendall's like, no, I'm trying to make the world a better place. And Logan's like, no, that's just a move. Fuck you. We're all playing a game here. Don't get on your high moralistic horse about this. This is all just strategy, right? And that's sort of the difference between the two of them. Yeah, that's right. I couldn't have said it better myself. I mean, you know, that that that's the thing about, you know, that, that really Kendall lives in illusion. He lives yeah. in endless illusion. And one of the illusions is that he's going to sort it all out. But he's got so much baggage. He's got more baggage than his father, you know, because right. he's a drug addict. You know, he's been, yes. he's, I mean, he's got a lot of stuff. So he is of a very, very fragile sensibility. And I, I always thought it was funny when, you know, it's just really weird that I talk about the fact he's not a killer, and I throw that out there. I say, "Yeah, you don't. Have, you're not a killer. You know, you've got to be a killer." And of course, then yeah. of course, he thinks, "Oh, what I've got to do is kill." So I'll go and kill my dad. And he goes, right, right. you didn't. You right. didn't. <laughs> yes, yes. Actually, let me play Let me play one, the, the kind of climactic scene between Logan and Kendall from the finale of season three. It's right at the moment where Kendall's basically saying to Logan, I want out. Pay me. I'm better than you. And here comes Logan's response. How long was that kid alive before he started sucking in water? A couple of minutes. Three, four, five. Long time, two minutes. What were you even doing? Chasing a bit of tail? Hey, are you queer? Did you try to fuck him? Or was it just the drugs? I'm better than you. Sure. You're my son. I did. My best. And whenever you fucked up, I cleaned up your shit. And I'm a bad person? Fuck off, kiddo. Good night. We're out of here. So I don't think I'm the only person who saw that and thought, that's just brutal. <laughs> brutal. And yet true, like yeah. you watch it, you're like, you're on Logan. He's like the most eviscerating thing he could do to his son. And you're like, yeah, but I, he's kind of right. Yeah, I'm afraid he is. I mean, that's a difficult because I'm, you know, I, I have to, you know, and I don't like doing this. I hate being put in this position because a, the, the rule in acting is you should never judge a character. You allow the characters to speak for itself. And that's what you do. Right. That's your job. You don't gear it or steer it in one way or the other. But it's so obvious with Logan that he talks a lot of sense. And they're so obvious with Logan that he's right. I mean, he's horrible, but he's right. <laughs> he's yeah. right about the fact that these kids are so far gone. They have no sense of true reality because they've had everything. You know, whenever they wanted something, they've got it. They've been given it, you know, countless nannies or, you know, yeah. the mother or what have you, the indulgent of the child. And uh, it, it's... It's tragic for them. I mean, and that's the source of their tragedy. 
is that they have been not neglected, but they've been the opposite. They've been overcoddled to a certain extent that they've lost their sense of reality. They've lost their sense of relationship to something. And it's tragic for them. It's tragic for Kendall. It really is. But it's so obvious that when Logan says, you're not a killer, the next thing he does is says, oh, I'll kill my dad. That's what I've got to do now. And you go, that's not being a killer. That's doing an action where you're copying something as opposed to being what you should be in order to do what you need to do. And they don't get it, you know. We, of course, don't know what's going to happen in season four. And there's obviously been a lot of speculation about, like, where does, at this point, where does Kendall's character arc even go? And I want to ask you to speculate on it. I know you're waiting for the writers to, to tell you, but, you know, there was enough speculation about the possibility he was dead in that swimming pool. You know, the, the arc of that relationship, more or less constant, Logan just basically thinks that Kendall is measure up. The relationship with Shiv is more complicated, but it hasn't changed that much over time, which is he rates her, but she somehow doesn't have what he thinks she needs. She talks and then there's the relationship. She talks too much. She talks too much. Right. And then there's the relationship with Roman, which in this last season changed in a way that like he was really kind of on the rise. Yes, absolutely. His father's eyes. And I want to play this clip from the notorious now dick pics episode in 308. Let's play this. Then we'll talk about Logan and Roman on the other side of this. Are you a sicko? What is this? Why do you send them? It's just, you know, it's like, here's my dick. Oh, what? Like, uh, fuck you? People just send each other pics of their dicks. People send each other pics of their dicks. Yeah, have you heard of dick pics, Dad? Well, we do publish a number of popular newspapers, so yes, son. Uh, we probably invented the fucking words. But why? So it's it's totally fascinating. I want to hear what you think about the Roman Logan relationship because in that next episode after the the dick pic, you know, embarrassment and that are you a sicko, which is, you know, exactly what Logan seems to think, he then sort of absolves him on the boat and basically says, "Hey, if you have a problem, go take care of it. I don't want to hear about it." Where do you think the two of them stand as a relationship at the end of season 3? I think that Logan has admired in a way Roman's coming of age. And that happened at the end with the Middle Eastern money that Roman saw through that before all the avaricious of Laird, the bank manager, and Carl, the financial manager. And Roman saw that it was a fallacy. It wasn't really real. And that to me showed me that this boy has something considerable, but it's so wrapped up in this. He's so potty mouthed and so kind of masturbatory bound that he can't shake that off. And once he shakes that off, he will start to grow up and he will get realer. He's funny, he's witty, he's sharp. And he's got, I think, ultimately a lot more to offer than Kendall has, because he yeah. hasn't got the Kendall curse of, of the drugs and all of that. You know, I mean, he's probably a wild boy as well, but he's still forming as a character, uh, Roman, because he's still young enough to form. And in a way, he just saw this dick pic thing as a, a kind of setback to something yeah. that was on a, on the way to become something. And in fact, I I actually felt, and I, I've said this before, and I'm sure Jesse will probably smack me over the wrist for saying it, but it's my opinion. I'm entitled to it. <laughs> so I felt that right at the end, we should have seen, because it was a wonderful thing that was written, and we never saw it, where Frank, who's put up with Roman ridiculously and he suddenly said you know you're a spoiled boy and he lets him have it in a way that is kind of devastating uh, right after that scene and then we see where he has become 
detached in a way. And I felt it was because he's the one, Roman is the one who raises clumsily the notion of love. Yes. And it's because it's something he feels. He yeah. feels that there's some love that he has for his dad and there's some, yeah. but to raise it at that point when no love has been forthcoming from any of them, but just avarice and greed and want yeah. and selfishness. And I just thought that's, that was such a wonderful beat. And then everybody lays into Roman. And so you're left with a kind of Roman that it's more, you know, he's, he does take a, a battering. Now, unfortunately, he didn't see that because they focused on the Shiv and Matthew thing, Tom. which carries yeah. you into the next season. You know, and we, we had a lot of problems with time. I mean, it has to be said that originally we were, we, we're normally, it was a 10 episode thing. And then Jesse suddenly said, I'm going to do eight episodes. And then finally came back and said, I'm going to be nine. And actually, quite honestly, we could have done 10 quite easily because we had enough material. So it, it was, a for me, a lost opportunity to see something else arrive that was there. They wrote it. It's all there. But they decided to excise it and move into another direction, which is, is their choice. Here's my last succession question before we kind of step back and talk a little bit more about your past career and, and some of the stuff that's in putting the rabbit in the hat. Although this is actually putting in the in putting the rabbit in the hat. You talk about your disdain for or at least your your refusenik status on method acting. And you've said this out throughout your career. Uh, the Jeremy Strong story got a lot of attention. I'm curious, just not without trying to kind of rehash that that debate, although, frankly, People treated that piece like it was a hit piece, and it didn't really seem like that to me. And in a lot of ways, I think it elevated Jeremy and, and made it seem like he just really cares about his craft. But I'm curious about working with him and Kieran Culkin and their different methods, which are starkly different. Just talk about what that's like to be dealing with those two younger actors who have a very different approach to their craft and what you kind of, as you watch it, what it does for the show and what you think about it personally, just to see the contrast between the two of them. Because Kieran, I guess, is is also like you, the opposite of a method actor, someone who like learns his lines very fast and just riffs. I think Kieran's extraordinary. And I, I think I've always had, because I've worked with a number of them, I have huge respect for child actors. I have huge respect for them because they don't do research. They just do it and they do it instantly. They can go in and out of it and nobody's, you know. There's a thing I've done and you could see it on YouTube. It's called Brian Cox's Masterclass with Theo. And in that, I teach this two and a half year old child to be or not to be. Okay, to be or not to be. Say it. To be. Or not to be. Or not to be. That is the question. Yeah. That is the question. Yeah. I know it's... <laughs> say, say, to be or not to be, that is the question. Yeah, it is. That is the question. <laughs> yeah. can, you a, say... can you say that is the question? And yes. the child, the little boy, Theo, he's, he's now 12. It was a long time ago. He gets distracted. He goes off. But he always comes back to what he's saying. Yes. And he does things like there's a marvelous moment when he says, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. And this little soul, when he got to slings and arrows, he did this. Slings and arrows. He did that. For all of our listeners who can't see you, Brian, it looks like uh, Theo waved his arms around as if he were fighting. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, yeah. that's so 
on the money. And yeah. it's so him. He hasn't prepared yeah. it. He hasn't researched it. He's just done it. And it's come yeah. from somewhere actually quite mysterious, but it's there. When you say him, oh, sorry, that's, you're talking about Theo the child now. And I'm talking about, about to make Theo the, comparison. the child. I'm talking about Theo the But he's like Kieran in a way. <laughs> exactly like Kieran, because Kieran yeah. was a child actor as well. So yeah. he has that root, which is allowing him so that he's not trammeled by things. Because he's so experienced in that way, it doesn't have to become a religious experience. You know, he can do it. Now, Jeremy is very much in the line of certain American actors. They want to be that involved. They want to be that deep. They don't want anything to distract them. I understand it. I completely understand it. I'm empathetic to it. But personally, I don't think it's necessary. Personally, I think you can do it without having to do any of that. And also, it increases your range. Because if you are overly connected with something, it's hard to get out of it. And in a way, you've got to go from one extreme to another. That's yeah. what, you know, an actor has to be able to turn on a dime. Right. He's got to be able to do it. Now, that may happen that in a course of a scene, Jeremy can... I mean, Jeremy's a wonderful actor. Don't get me wrong. Sure. He's, a, sure. he's sure, an sure. extremely fine actor. But he puts himself through it. I think it's unnecessary. And uh, I, I will think that till the day I die. And Kieran just does it. And he does yeah. it because it's... It's, it's in his system to do it. And it's been there since he was a kid. We are going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more Brian Cox on Hell and High Water. Welcome back to Hell and High Water. You've had, you know, this extraordinary career. It goes back a long way. Putting the rabbit in the hat details a lot of it. It's a engrossing read. It's a fun read. It's a brisk read. Hey, the biggest compliment you can ever give to anybody who writes a book, which is not the case with a lot of memoirs, is that it's a page turner. You rifle through that thing. You learn things. There's great anecdotes. There's actual deep meditations on various things. A really nice mix of things. I want to just go step back into your classical training, which I think is part of what informs your view about some of, of these method methods. And I want to play a little sound from you doing Titus Andronicus because you have said it's the greatest thing you have ever done uh, in the stage production that was in the late 80s. You write in the book that Titus was the one. Titus saved me when you did it in 1987. And I want to play. This is not from 1987. This is you doing a, a class on it a little later, but it'll give you a sense of what Brian Cox sounds like doing a little bit of Titus Andronicus. You know, your mother means to feast with me and calls herself revenge and thinks me mad. Hark, villains. I will grind your bones to dust, and with your blood and it I'll make a paste, and of the paste a coffin I will rear, and make two pasties of your shameful heads, and bid that strumpet your unhallowed dam like to the earth swallow her own increase. This is the feast that I have bid her to, and this the banquet she shall surfeit on. You sound very Scottish there, and I'll, I will point out that in Succession season three, there's a moment where you tell Kendall that you're going to grind his bones to make his bread, so make your bread. So that's a, that's a good throwback from Succession. But Titus is like among the, the pantheon of Shakespeare plays, is not the most famous, not considered the greatest. Some people think it's the first that he wrote. 
And it's really hard to stage. There's a lot of blood. There's a lot of violence. It's not everyone's favorite Shakespeare. But again, you said that it saved you and that it's the one, the greatest thing you ever did. So I'm curious mm-hmm. if you can just talk about that a little bit and why Titus means so much to you and why that performance means as much as it did to you. Well, Titus was, for me, the liberation of really going back to, well, my acting roots, really. I mean, you know, I'm a Scot and I was raised in the British theatre, but it was ostensibly the English theatre. That was my classical training. I went to a, an English drama school. I learnt about iambic pentameter. I learnt how to speak in verse. I learnt all of that, which was fantastic. It was the best training ever. It was just incredible. But at the same time, there was the other element, which was the element of where I was coming from, which was a much more vaudevillian tradition, which I eschewed for a long time because I tried to be a sort of smarter actor in a way. And what happened was that I was doing the Scottish play. The name. Oh, that's right. right sorry. That's the, big Macbeth for anybody who Mac, doesn't know yeah, that that's absolutely. what he's talking about. Yeah, yeah. sorry. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a lifetime of superstition. I totally understand. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm not yeah. really superstitious, but that's what people refer to. And I was in India, you know, and I, it was it was difficult because I was finding these obstacles in the play, which I couldn't overcome. And I remember I was doing this and this young woman, this girl, she was a katak dancer. She was a dancer and she comes up to me and she says, and she's been very sweet and how much she admires and, and enjoys what, I mean, she's always standing in the wings watching me. And she said, can I say something to you? And I said, sure. She said, I, when I watch you, I always get the feeling you want to move more. I said, really? Uh, I said, why do you think that? She said, well, there's just something in you where I, I just feel that you want to kind of move. And she was right. But I said, yeah, I, I know what you mean. And I said, it's just one has to be a little more decorous about one does, you know, and, and just, you know. And then I realized that I was censoring a whole area of my performance potential, which was the physical side of what you do. And through that, I got this glimpse of a different kind of acting. So when I got to doing Titus, and I I was working with this amazing director, Deborah Warner, and she liberated me to that physicality. And so the play, and why I think it's a great play, because it has so many ideas for the other plays. It's got Othello, it's got Macbeth, it's got Lear. It's all in there, all the ideas there. And some of the scenes, the morning scene of the sea is a wonderful scene. I mean, it's a huge range of a play and a whole range of a part. So I just took to it like a duck to water. I just realized that I could be what I wasn't, you know, I was in my beginning 40s, and it had taken yeah. me to my beginning 40s to have the courage to act in that way. And for me, it was a, a huge eye-opener and a huge release. And also the thing about that play and why I think that play works is because yeah. it deals with the ludicrousness of life. Yes. It's that life is ludicrous. It's brutal and it's ludicrous. And I think Shakespeare, and he's getting off on it as a writer. He's a young writer because he also wrote Richard III at the same time. So he was having a ball. <laughs> 
Yes, for sure. And again, I, just to think about this moment in your trajectory, right? You just said you're in your early 40s. You know, you'd had a career, but really, you know, that play, as you said, saved me. It was everything at the same time, roughly the same time. That was 1987. In 1986, you make your kind of debut in American films, mm-hmm. playing Hannibal Lecter and Michael Mann's original. Hannibal Lecter movie, not really a Hannibal Lecter movie. It was about broader things, but you're opposite yeah. William Peterson, who plays Will Graham, and you're the first Hannibal Lecter. I want to play a little bit of that sound right now. First of all, I, I think it's a brilliant movie and a brilliant portrayal of Lecter and so different. Obviously, we could talk about this all day to Anthony Hopkins, but let's just listen to this. This is the first time that American audiences really ever saw Brian Cox on screen. I want you to help me, Dr. Lecter. Yes. I thought so. It's about Atlanta and Birmingham. Yes. You read about it? In the papers. I don't tear out the articles. I wouldn't want them to think I was dwelling on anything morbid. You want to know how he's choosing them, don't you? I thought you might have some ideas. Why should I tell you? You get to see the file in this case. And there's another reason. Pray tell. But you might be curious to see if you're smarter than the person I'm looking for. Then by implication, you think you're smarter than me since you caught me. No. I know that I'm not smarter. Then how did you catch me? You had disadvantages. What disadvantages? You're insane. So there's there's that scene. And again, anybody who's seen Silence of the Lambs, because everybody has, people should go back if you haven't seen Manhunter and go back and watch this, kind of the roots of it. I, you know, you've talked a lot about the differences between you and Hopkins and, and they're both great portrayals. And, and you know, we were just talking about Shakespeare. You point this out in the book, great actors play all the Shakespearean roles and, and you've done a lot of that yourself. The question I want to ask you is this, like, not that many people get lucky enough to have Michael Mann as the director of their first big American movie. What was it like working mm. with Michael Mann? And then I'm going to ask you about some other directors you've worked with and haven't worked with. But talk about the Michael Mann experience and what that was like to you know, bring Lecter to the screen under his supervision. Well, Michael's great gift is his psychological understanding of how people operate, what motivates people. And that was what was so strong about his direction on that. And he had, of course, and he also has this amazing visual sense the whiteness of the light, the brightness of the play. I mean, there's a bank of lights that was filmed by Dante Spinotti, who actually filmed, believe it or not, The Red Dragon, which was when it was remade. And uh, it just had this kind of extraordinary, he had this extraordinary grasp of the underworkings of what Lecter was about. And that was the kind of line we took on it. His weariness, his tiredness. I mean, it was even even went as far as the what happened in the audition was in the audition. Barney Timmerman, who auditioned me, said, "I don't want to see you in the audition." I said, "What do you mean you don't want to see me?" She said, "Well, I did this play called Rat in the Skull, and what happened was that she arrived late, and she was sitting in a chair, so she could only hear me, and she was fascinated by my voice, so she thought I could hear you, but I couldn't see you, and I yeah. want to give Michael this impression, so I started." turning away from the camera and and smelling the sm- the the aramis smell not the aramis the ship what's that yeah old spice smell yeah the old spice yeah so i was smelling all that so that was it so that olfactory sense was quite acute so i just thought this is a guy who doesn't have to work all that much and also the yeah. other thing about evil is that real evil is very mundane yes and i I also, as a child, had been obsessed by this guy called Peter Manuel, who was this first serial killer that was ever, in my country, was ever given any range. Of, I mean, he was he was extraordinary, this guy. A little guy, Portuguese. I know, actually, he was born in New York of a Portuguese family. They 
lived in Scotland, and he was this, um, he was a killer. He was a serial yeah. killer, but he also defended himself. He was a very bright man. So his intellect was quite something, but his, his moral sense was completely skew up. And also the same with Ted Bundy. When you looked at Ted Bundy, Ted Bundy was a very attractive, could have been a great politician, yeah. had a potentially great gear, but he had this, this overwinning weakness to kill young women. I, I would say the difference, and again, we could spend too much time on this, but the difference between really you and Hopkins is, is that you're kind of the realist Hannibal Lecter, the H Hannah Arendt uh, banality of evil Hannibal Lecter, where Hopkins is more, he's campy. It's a great performance, but it's a, it's a little more florid, right? A little yeah. more campy, a little bit yeah. more, you know, out there. Yeah. I mean, and it worked. It worked very well. I mean, I, I, I had to go to Paris to see it because <laughs> it was tricky. You couldn't show up in the movie theater? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I couldn't show up, yeah. but I loved it. I, I, I really did. You know, he's an extraordinary actor, Tony. I mean, he really is. And, and he has that, he does Baroque better than anybody, you know? Yeah. Yes. I mean, if I had you for an endless amount of time, I would play, you know, the Bourne movies obviously gave you a high profile in America because they were so successful uh, in two of them playing opposite uh, Matt Damon and, and, and everyone else in those movies. I'm not going to play that, but I'm going to play something else from another director, a director who you say in the book is very really striking to me. You say this thing about Spike Lee in the book where you say he's one of the best directors I've ever worked with. I put him up there with Bergman, Hitchcock and Antonioni. And the experience you had was was in 25th Hour, a movie that was really the first true kind of post 9-11 movie that was made. Ed Norton is in it. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, the late great, was is in it. A, a number of other really fine actors. Uh, Barry Pepper. Barry Pepper is the third. And uh, Rosario Dawson, tremendous film, incredibly beautifully written. And the end of it, after Ed Norton, heroin dealer, gets busted, going to prison, celebrating his last 24 hours before being incarcerated, various things happen. He ends up being driven to prison by his father, played by Brian Cox, who suggests on the way to the prison in the car that they not go to the prison, that they just drive out into America and get Monty, who is the Ed Norton character, get him lost. I want to play this because the last part of the movie is you narrating. It's just a long soliloquy, uh, mm. a beautiful soliloquy, beautifully shot. Here's a little piece of it just so we could hear what it sounded like as this was an extraordinary ending to an extraordinary film. I drove out west with your mother one time before you was born. Brooklyn to the Pacific in three days. Just enough money for gas, sandwiches, and coffee. But we made it. Every man, woman, and child alive should see the desert one time before they die. Nothing at all for miles around. Nothing but sand and rocks and cactus and blue sky. Not a soul in sight. No sirens. No car alarms. Nobody honking at you. No madman cursing or pissing on the streets. You find the silence out there. You find the peace. You can find God. I'm not sure if you were doing Brooklyn or Queens there, but one of those two accents, very well done. J mm -hmm. Just talk about why, why you think Spike Lee is in that category. That's an incredible pantheon of directors to put him in and, and talk about Spike and talk about making this film, which I do think, if you go back and look at it now, stands the test of time as a period piece of what New York was like right after 9-11, probably better mm -hmm. than any other movie made by anyone. Yeah. No, Spike is extraordinary. He has, you know, he's very funny. He's very witty. He's very unpretentious. He's so unpretentious. But he does it. He puts you in the right place. You know, so many directors never put you in the right place, but Spike knows exactly where to place you. He knows where to place you in the scene. He knows what the dynamic is. He understands so much. And he is an incredible cineast. I mean, his knowledge of film 
is astounding. And of course, he's always, you know, regarded because of his African-American status, which is a great status, and he is a formidable, you know, figure in that way. But some people don't realize his range, the range that he has. You know, when you think of Do the Right Thing, and you think of 25th Hour, and you think of the range of that film, it's it's astonishing. And he is just, he's just also, he's a wonderful communicator, but he also doesn't have to say a lot because you know you're in the right place. And that's half the problem with a lot of films and stuff where the director just says you're in the wrong place or doesn't know where to place you. But Spike is impeccable, absolutely impeccable in that way. You know, one of the things the book has gotten some attention for is you take some shots at some folks and there's been headlines and, you know, there's the Johnny Depp and there's uh, Ed Norton. I mentioned it because of Ed Norton's obviously in that movie and you and you say a few critical things about him. And I've seen you on the, on the circuit here say, oh, but, you know, Ed's changed and things have gone on. I'm entitled to my opinion, which I totally agree with, by the way. I think the bracing candor of the book and some of that is really fun. There's a little bit of a trolling quality to it, though. And I raise it only, first of all, to, I'm going to ask you about how you kind of think about that, like you kind of tweaking people and then kind of like a little bit sort of like softening the criticism now. But the reason I raise it is because we just talked about Michael Mann and we just talked about Spike Lee. One of the most stunning things to me, and I will say, I've never wanted to disagree with Brian Cox, but this is one where I'm not sure about this opinion expressed. I'm going to read to you what you say about Quentin Tarantino in the book. Trouble is I don't really have much time for Quentin Tarantino. I find his work meretricious. It's all surface plot mechanics in place of depth style where there should be substance. I walked out of Pulp Fiction. I gritted my teeth and sat through Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and although it wasn't as bad as I'd feared, it still wasn't good enough to convert me. Unlike seemingly the rest of the world, indeed my sons, I am a Tarantino refusenik, and then comes the sting in the tail in the book. That said, if the phone rang, I'd do it. And so, I mean, take a, you know, there's a whole generation of people that you've just lost if you take on Tarantino that way. But it's funny because it, it's like the thing I was talking about, about the trolling. It's like you take the shot, and then it's like, well, but if the phone rang, I go work for Tarantino. Well, it's the reality. You know, I mean, I, I'm not a fool. I, I'll go where the work is. Yeah. You know, and the reality is if he calls, I would work with him. I mean, I don't. I mean, I, I think that he has a peculiar bent that he's keen on as a filmmaker, and it works. You know, I'm in the minority. It works for a lot of people, you know, and uh, maybe it's because I'm old-fashioned. Maybe it's because I'm a, too much of a maybe a traditionalist, though I don't think I am, but that's probably could be one of the arguments against me. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of arguments against me and, you know, <laughs> maybe I'm just plain bloody minded, but I've got nothing. I mean, I've seen Tarantini's movies and I remember I couldn't take this Pulp Fiction when they shoot the boy in the back of the car. I, I just, it was too much for me. I had to leave the cinema because of the brutality of it. And I just thought it was, it was there for effect, you know, which, and it always worries me when that, and there's a lot of effect in his movies, which works because, you know, the audiences rise to it. I do the opposite. I don't rise at all. But that's not to say that I'm right. I'm possibly wrong, you know. Sure. And also, the other thing I just want to say about all this stuff, which is why I've actually written an addendum, which is should have gone in the American publication. It didn't because I yeah. realized that. It it skews stuff because, you know, some people might think my book's a gossipy book. And I really right. want to it's make not. clear that the it's gossip not. is exactly, I mean, it's less than a tenth of an inch in writing. And that kind of annoys me. And it's, and it's my own fault because I should have realized that people will jump on that. When you express an opinion, they'll go, oh, get him. Oh, how yeah. dare he? Yeah. Oh, Johnny Depp, this man has no respect. And that's the thing. 
I have total respect for anybody who does anything in our profession, whether they be director, actor, or anything, because I know how difficult it is. But, you know, everybody has their own style. Some styles work. For me, some styles don't. I'm old fashioned in that way. Look, I mean, I think there's a little bit of an old fashioned shit stirrer in you. Let's be clear. I mean, I think there there's a little bit of that. You know, shit stirrer in me. Yeah, I, yeah. I like to stir the shit. I like to. Yes. I like to be provocative. You know. Sure. I, I can confirm, having read the book, that the uh, gossip in the book is is few and far between. And even these comments are not really gossipy. They're, as you say, they're kind of just opinions. And yeah. But I, I think we could do with a little more shit stirring in the world. To be honest with you, I want to play one more clip before we talk about politics, just from the past, and it's not a thing that you talk about in the book, I was sad to not see you write about your role in, in adaptation where you play a famous screenwriting guru who people who are in this business uh, know who that it is, Robert McKee. I mean, you play him and, and Nicolas Cage is playing Charlie Kaufman, basically, who was the writer of the film and one of the many meta twists of Charlie Kaufman films. And Cage walks into this presentation that McKee is giving in New York and basically says, how can I write a screenplay that's more true to the real world? And that not that much really happens in the real world. It's just a kind of a boring grind. How do we represent that on screen? And this is what Brian Cox as Robert McKee, although you will hear some Logan Roy in here, too. This is what he has to say. Nothing happens in the world. Are you out of your fucking mind? People are murdered every day. There's genocide, war, corruption. Every fucking day, somewhere in the world, somebody sacrifices his life to save somebody else. Every fucking day, someone somewhere takes a conscious decision to destroy someone else. People find love. People lose it. For Christ's sake, a child watches a mother beaten to death on the steps of a church. Someone goes hungry. Somebody else betrays his best friend for a woman. If you can't find that stuff in life, then you, my friend, don't know crap about life. And why the fuck are you wasting my two precious hours with your movie? I don't have any use for it. I don't have any bloody use for it. Okay, thanks. So the best part about that clip is Cage like crumpling and saying, okay, thanks. As he sits back down in his chair, it's a fantastic <laughs> moment. I ask you, like, I mean, I played it because I think it's an incredible thing. And yeah. like McKee in this, in this rendering is saying so yeah, much that's true absolutely. about the world and saying so much true about the theater and about film and about television. I know you, you give conviction to everything you do, but there's just something in that that feels like that's actually also the way Brian Cox sees the world just being filtered through Robert McKee in that moment. Well, Robert and I agree a lot, and it was Robert who was the champion of me to play that role. I mean, there's a lot of people. Michael Caine was talked about playing that role at one point, and you can imagine what that would have been like. You know, yes. so <laughs> there was a <laughs> like in your opinion, in your opinion, all of Michael well, Caine's other roles. Maybe you, <laughs> the Michael Caine, but again, you know, Michael Caine. What I love about Michael Caine mm -hmm. is that he has always honored his working class roots in his work. And that's what I think yes, is very sure. precious about Michael. But no, um, it's a great yeah. role. And Robert was very worried about it because he gave himself over to it. And Charlie Kaufman swears that he never took Robert's class, which I think is probably untrue. <laughs> but what I felt yeah, was that, yeah. that he, was, he was concerned that he was going to be ridiculed. You know, and there's a scene after where we sit in a bar and I'm, I'm in an intimate conversation with Nick Cage. And when we were doing it, it was one of those TGI Fridays and all the, everybody was dressed in suits, all the sort of ancillary staff. 
and the first assistant was dressed in a suit, and he turned to Spike Jones and he said, Spike, finally you've got your Obi-Wan Kenobi character into a movie. And I told Robert this fact. I said, you know that they think of you as Obi-Wan. And he was so relieved that he hadn't been ridiculed that he would yeah. rather be Obi-Wan Kenobi than anything else. I ask you quickly, before we turn to politics, how did you enjoy being on The Simpsons? Oh, it's nice. Delightful. They're always so <laughs> sweet. They're always so nice. It feels like being on The Simpsons is like it's the ultimate sign that you've now become like a part oh, of a, oh, yeah, having yeah, your voice yeah. work no, on The I Simpsons. You become part of like the pantheon of popular culture. Yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, it's great. I think it also kind of reflects the notion that you kind of recognize you're in on a joke a little bit because you yeah, do it. You, you, you know, you, I mean, you're yes. it's such a, a stentorian delivery for a cartoon that kind of says, hey, I, I get it. I'm happy yeah. to be, have the piss taken. Oh, yeah. Bit. I mean, as I get older, I just want to be doing things that are funny. I, I really don't want to be doing anything that's too kind of overly gravitas. <laughs> Let's take another quick break now and we'll be right back with more Brian Cox on Hell and High Water. And we are back with Brian Cox on Hell and High Water. So let me ask you about politics now. You played some incredible parts, and, and we'll talk a little bit about real politics, but I want to just think about this. So first of all, you, you played Churchill in a film. You played LBJ on stage in New York on Broadway. You played Herman Goering in Nuremberg. I'll play a little bit of that in a second, but you got many, many plaudits and, and won some awards for it, including an Emmy Award, I believe. Talk about the way in which you think about approaching parts where the characters are either rooted in historical fact and where they are enormous world historical figures. Those are three characters that are, everybody knows something about. They have a lot of preconceptions. They also are wielders of enormous power, some of them better morally than others in the case mm. of Gehring. Just talk about what it's like to prepare for those and how you approach those roles maybe differently from others. Well, the thing is, I don't really approach them differently. I mean, I, there are the given set of circumstances, and those are the things that I deal with, the circumstances of the role. But what I try to do is, I, and again, it's this question of not judging. Do not judge your characters. You know, so if you're playing Adolf Hitler, you have to get inside why Hitler becomes Adolf Hitler. And if you're playing Hermann Goring, you certainly have to get inside why Hermann Goring, who became the champion of Hitler, and then you look at the history and you look at where it is in relationship to what was called the war to end all wars, which was a fatuous war, basically a row between the crown heads of Europe, between George V and his cousin, the Kaiser Bill, and his other cousin, Nicholas II of Russia, in which people always forget that. They always think that. And millions of people, men, died because of that. And countries were destroyed because of that. And one of the victims, too, because they were the ones that lost it, was Germany. And Germany was a victim of it. And the Treaty of Versailles was punitive in relationship to Germany. But therefore, yep. it was creating a seedbed in which these extraordinary characters could grow and develop. And Goering, who was a... Basically, he was a flyer. He was the second most decorated flying ace after von Richthofen. And he took his squadron into Switzerland and he right. abandoned them there. And he walked back into Germany and he kept on walking and eventually ended up living in Sweden. And he had a nervous breakdown. And he had a very kind of delicate sensibility because he'd been through the war to end all wars. 
He'd right. been at the front. He'd seen the horror. And then he'd seen his country traduced by the Treaty of Versailles. So he decided he would leave. And then he saw this young kind of whippersnapper, Viennese boy, you know, painter, you know, coming to the yeah. fore. And yeah. he suddenly thought, this kid's got something. So he put his whole weight behind Hitler. And mm. what happened was what happened. And then it ended up horrifically. Goering was the one who started the concentration camps. Yeah. And they were actually based on a British idea that the yeah. Brits had done to the Boers in South Africa. And well, it was to separate people off. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. point is, that is the juice that feeds the role. It's well, the same with LBJ. Probably, yeah. you know, the guy who passed more bills than anybody in his first year when he first came in. Right. But he was in, given a, a kind of bad hand, principally through Robert McNamara and the whole business of Vietnam, which he could not extricate himself from. And it's exactly the same deal that he set up, which Henry Kissinger shot down, was the same deal that Henry Kissinger created with Nixon. And, yeah. you know, the war came to an end. So there are all these things historically which affect the individual and right. make the individual kind of fragile in a way. Churchill was another one. You know, he's another yeah. character who came into his own, who was regarded as a nuisance. People didn't like him, but he right. was true to his word, particularly about Hitler. So when you gather these guys, they're just fascinating animals to deal with because you're dealing with them from their own point of view. Right. You're not dealing with them from anything else. And your answer here reflects one thing that, that seems to be true and, and comes through in the book and in other places where you talk about this. You do a lot of historical research when you do a character like this. One of the things about the Churchill performance is that you know, you had Gary Oldman, who was in Darkest Hour the same year. He wins the Oscar. The movie kind of sucked. And the performance of Gary Oldman was great. But your version of Churchill is, is more historically rooted to, to what his actual feelings were about certain things and how World Wars II plays out. It's an interesting compare and contrast between the way Churchill is lionized and portrayed in a lot of other places. And it's different and, again, more historically accurate, I think, as a result of the work that you did and the screenwriters did there. I want to play the Gehring clip, though, just because for, for someone who knows as much about history as you do and someone who has your politics, which are decidedly left, and we'll talk about your socialism in, in a minute. But I want to just ask you how uncomfortable it is to play a part like this and, again, get so many accolades for it and whether it ever gives you pause and how you get into this kind of character. This is uh, Gehring is, is being accosted by a Jewish prison guard who's basically saying berating him in a way for what the Nazis did to the Jews. And he is defending himself and, and first points to the Japanese internment camps and then says this. And what about the Negro officers in your own army? Are they allowed to command troops in combat? Can they sit on the same buses as the whites? The segregation laws in your country and the anti-Semitic laws in mine, are they not just a difference of degree? Let me tell you, from the beginning of the century, through the first war, until the rise of Hitler, the Freemasonry of the Jewish merchants consistently undermined the German economy and the nationhood of the fatherland. That is why we made anti-Semitic laws and why you, my friend, can never understand anti-Semitism. Why? Because you. So in that soliloquy, you have Gehring making some interesting uh, arguments based in a kind of relativism and sort of saying, hey, America's not not sinless here. Think about the Japanese internment camps. Think about the way they treat African-Americans. And that ends up with all this like straight up anti-Semitism at the very end of the, the, very end of the speech. I'm curious as to how you got to process that and whether, as I said before, there's any discomfort 
I, I understand the actor's job, but whether there's any discomfort in, in embodying that kind of evil. No, there's no discomfort. You just try and present it as it is, you know, warts and all. I mean, of course, what he suggests, you know, and the ultimate what happened was awful. I mean, there's no mm. question about it. It was just the worst thing ever. But when something is released in the way it was released in Nazi Germany, and he was part of that, naturally, of course, he's going to look towards why the thing was. And his view is, as he says, there was a kind of tightness, you know, during the First World War that he felt that people were doing certain things and he wanted to contain it. He wanted to concentrate it, which is why the original concentration camps were created. Now, of course it's wrong, and of course it became horrible. There's no question about it. But what you have to understand, the actor has to understand, is the motivating force for that. That's my job. I've got to understand yeah. it. Rather than twirl my mustache or go, well, you know, you know, I've got to say, this is the argument. This is why it arrived at that. And why you can't understand it is because you are of that. And he would go on to say, and it's understandable why you can't understand it. Because it has affect, you know, your life is right. so affected by it. And there is stories of him. We don't go into it. There are stories of him yeah. where there were two Jewish women who helped when, uh, on the night of the Long Knives. They, they actually nursed him back when he was nearly killed. Mm. And he managed to get them out of Germany, ironically. So there are these contradictions all the time, yeah. you know. And there's also well, in that team... There were the real anti-Semites who were just yes. anti the whole thing. And there were also the sign who were anti what that represented, you know? Yes. By the way, none of it's excusable. None of it. Of course. You know? Of course, obviously. And and look, I mean, there's always a lot of complexity, except in certain cases where you you meet a monster that's not that complex. And I'll, I'll give you one example. Someone I know you have negative feelings about. If we were doing this podcast for the BBC, I would talk to you a lot about your views about Scottish independence. I'm with you on that. Let's set the Scots free. I know you've said recently that you like to tell Boris Johnson to fuck off. I think we all can agree with that, too, given uh, what's going on over there. But I want to talk about American politics here real quickly as we get to the end, which is Trump. And that was the person I was referring to, where it's like a very simple monster. And you say in the book, putting the rabbit in the hat, you say, the other day I was asked, would you ever fancy playing Donald Trump? No, I said, why not? It's such a bad script. <laughs> there's no dimension to it. The problem with Trump, there's nothing to be investigated, which would make him unrewarding to play. I know you think that Trump is a sign of profound, that he got elected and that he continues to have so much power in America is a sign of profound decline in America. But talk a little bit about that how someone who is that problematic and is going to go down as, as a historical figure of great consequence in America, how he can be that one dimensional to the point where Brian Cox, of all people, says, I'm just not interested. He's a boring figure. Incredibly historically important, well, terrible, but boring. I mean, you know, there is an argument for how you would play Trump because you would investigate the fact that he was probably an abused child. He probably has real difficult dark nights of the soul thing to do with his own father and also the disaffection of his mother. So there's certain elements there, which of course lead to the character that he is today, but he is so obnoxiously outrageous or outrageously obnoxious <laughs> that it's very hard to find anything that's, you know, I, I mean, I do think that he's not well. I do think that his sense of proportion is lost yes. somewhere. So, and of course that, you know, he's very much in the tradition of the sort of, you know, the mad Roman emperors. He has that kind of quality about him. And, and yet he appeals to so many 
because of yep. something which is unleashed about him. And there's a sort of envy that people have for that element in him that is unleashed. So they will go for that. Personally, I think it's not for nothing that at the same time in history, we have two idiots, Johnson in the UK and Trump here, you know, and, yeah. and we have these incredible fools who some people refuse to see through. In my country, it's because of feudalism, we cannot throw off the yoke of feudalism. And we will always trust somebody who went to a public school and seems to have had a better education than us. And that's one of those things that I thought we were going to drift away from in the 1960s, and we haven't. We did for a while. Social mobility was great between 1960 yes. and 1972, yes. But then it reverted back to its all, everybody in their place. In America, it's a different story. In America, yeah. it's, it's a political system which is weary. You know, it's a weary system. It doesn't know whether it's on its, um, <laughs> no, I won't say it, but it doesn't know whether it's on its, <laughs> I won't say it, it doesn't know whether it's on its ass or its elbow, you know, it really right. doesn't. No, that's good. And I, I find that so extraordinarily confusing. And there's this, and also there's this sentimentality, which is so, ah, right. here, you know, they're so, but, they're so given to sentiment. And of course, sentiment always leads to the most vicious cruelty. I'm going to take a big swing here trying to like tie up a bunch of things. And to tee it up, I want to go back to succession and play one last thing. Your conversation with Matson. Here's a little thing where you talk about Logan Roy's view of America. And then we'll get a last question and we'll let you go, Brian Cox. America. I don't know. When I arrived, there were these gentle giants smelling of fucking gold and milk. They could do anything. Now look at them. Fat as fuck. Scrawny on meth or yoga, it pissed it all away. Scrawny on meth or yoga, which is like one of my favorite lines in the entire show. <laughs> you said many times that you're an old socialist, raised from your, your working class roots and, and growing up in Scotland. There's a lot of socialism about up there. And it's clear from our earlier discussion that what succession really is, is a withering indictment of capitalism as it currently is, late stage consumer capitalism and at the highest end. That little speech by Logan Roy is this kind of sepia-hued kind of view of what America used to be and what it is now. And he's a kind of an avatar of the capitalism that has made America, in some sense, you know, scrawny on meth and yoga and fat as fuck, right? So I ask you just about that. Is it your view that capitalism has basically failed and that it's good for nothing? And the extension to this question is this. If I've read your great book and I think about everything I've ever heard you say about acting and how you think about acting, there's like a socialistic kind of attitude that you have towards acting. And by that, I mean, you are very focused on the common good more than the individual. That seems like what the method reflection is kind of about. It's like we're a whole. We're the collective here. And it's more about the collective than it is about individual performances. I, I, I know that's that. a big question trying to tie it all up in a big ball. But here you go. That's it. That's what I want to end on. I agree with it. I mean, the thing about America and the thing that always appealed to me about America was this notion of egalitarianism. It was one of the most attractive things that were going for America for me. You know, when I came here, they didn't ask me what school I went to. They didn't ask me what my accent was. They always thought I was English, which made me laugh. They were just generous. I mean, I, I've never known such generosity. And it was the thing that really why I thought I could go and live in America, because that was a great thing in the when I arrived here in the, the, well, it started in the 70s. I arrived in the mid-70s, and I came here and worked in the 80s. 
And that was something that was so extraordinary. Anybody could be anything. And that was wonderful. Whereas in my country, only with, <laughs> only with, you know, with people backing you up can you be anything. But the potential for individuals here was unbelievable. But it's gone skew-if. It's gone off. It's gone somewhere that it, it should never have gone. And I'm dying for it to go back to what it was because it was something extraordinary. And it was something that made me very proud of the fact that I was living here and I wanted to be here. And I'm sure it'll come again. But in the moment, we're having a dark night of the soul. And at the moment, we've had so much confusion with the previous government and even with the present government and, and how it's difficult to make the demands that they need to make in order for this country to move forward and how it's being blocked endlessly. And... You know, it's it's tragic, but I I do love the country. I do love the values that are American. Because it was all started by people who wanted to get away to a kind of freedom where they could express themselves. And America did allow for that expression. And that's the key thing and the most important thing. And it was why I wanted to come to this country, because I knew my expression would be allowed. Let us hope that that you are right, Brian Cox, and that we are experiencing a temporary blip and not the beginning of the end. I occasionally think the apocalypse may be nigh and, and that there's not much cause for hope. But with all of your your dark night of the soul talk, there's still like that little flicker of optimism. And, and it's good to hear My optimism is endlessly present. And I'm, I know that it'll be fine, but it's going to be perhaps a lot darker before it gets fine. Let's try to keep that spark alive in Logan Roy, too. Uh, Brian Cox, thank you for taking the time. You've been awesome today, and it was a delight to have you. Thank you. Take care. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to Brian Cox for being with us. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Hell and High Water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I am your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineer the podcast. Justin Chermel handles the research. Margot Gray is our assistant producer. Stephanie Stender is our post-producer. And Christian Fidel Castro-Russell, he's our executive producer. 